Welcome to the Canicurio podcast powered by Cannabis Media. I'm your host, Ed Keating, and today I'm joined by Ben Walters, founder of Pioneer Intelligence. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be with you. So uh, I'd like to hear more of the creation story of, of, of Pioneer. How did it how did it come to be and, and, and why did you do it? Yeah, well, I'm um, again, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's cool to be with you. Um, my professional career has had uh, a variety of different chapters to it. Um, I started in the world of commodities many, many moons ago. Oh. I did that for seven years. Uh, the first three here in, uh, in the East Coast of the U.S. and then the last four in China. I moved to Shanghai at the end of 2003 expressly for this commodities business. Found a bit of success in mainland China, but um, more opportunity across the Asia-Pacific region and, and um, decided that that was a place that I, I wanted to spend some time, but also recognized that um, commodities was not what I was put on the planet to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, I used to come home at night and bang my head against the wall and how you differentiate yourself. And actually took a couple of cracks at, at trying to make that business uh, something more than it was. And at the end of the day, I made the determination that I wanted to go in another direction. And so I had had this idea of an original brand concept, and that became very appealing to me, this idea of... Um, if, you, if you're trying to sell something that everybody else was selling, let's do go the opposite direction and create something totally original. And so um, I had a company called Ozpop that I started in 2007, I think we did specialty footwear, um, really streetwear shoes, not too dissimilar from Chuck Taylor's, a canvas vulcanized shoe and made some accessories. And that was a seven year journey. The first three years far exceeded expectations in terms of what I thought was possible almost by any measure. I had a lot of fun and really enjoyed the idea of building a brand and doing the blocking and tackling on, on a shoestring. Um, yeah, some pricing mistakes in, in year three and sinking too much capital into inventory sort of was, was my undoing. But at the end of the day, I did finally exit that business and that opened up a door for me at Beats by Dre. And so this was the Beats brand just prior to the Apple acquisition. Um, and the brand and a lot of smart people had done a lot of work in, in the Asia market. My focus was really on China, had done a lot of uh, really good work in constructing um, a sales, sales architecture and distribution. Uh, but the brand was leveraging communications that were, you know, developed and, and, and marketing assets developed in uh, Culver City, California. And uh -huh. so our remit was, okay, let's, let's get local. Because as much as the value proposition of Beats had and, and probably still continues to develop. It's a lifestyle brand. And so communicating in local language through local communications channels using local ambassadors is, is key. And so we did that. And um, when we finally got that up and running and turned on the lights, which it was, it was pretty amazing that the business <clears throat> really did hockey stick. And again, a lot of people did a lot of work for us to sort of go in there in that glory moment. And yeah. But amongst our mandate was not only obviously to grow revenues, but being a lifestyle brand was to build what they call Beats Army with this like impassioned group of, of brand loyalists who were going to engage with the content. And when we started to, to do this in China, the, the people came and they came and they came in, in huge, huge numbers. And so that was really my first exposure to um, big marketing data, right? This is endless supply. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. People with a very... Um, still sort of, you know, sort of a green systems whereby, okay, let's bucket these people and figure out, you know, how to, how to, how to organize them and then continue to connect with them and back into sort of 
um, reconversion process and, and sort of get that, get that funnel going. Um, and so I really, I took to the numbers um, and I really enjoyed it. And again, again, a lot of people were involved in it, but I, we had, we had really good success with it. And so um, I had spent 13 years in Shanghai, all of them almost, almost every day an amazing one, but realized that that was not a place where I wanted to grow old. And so I repatriated back. And when I came back to the States, um, I had a consulting gig in the cannabis industry. I've been a cannabis consumer uh, since my late teen years and always very interested in sort of nascent markets. And so I jumped at the opportunity there. And alongside that project, I started to collect data on um, consumer facing brands in the space without really a clear idea of what I would do with that data set, but that perhaps me or the organization that I was working with, we could learn things through the data that would give us a leg up in understanding that sort of brand consumer relationship before reading about it in another publication or through uh, some other brands. Interesting. So, so there, there was, you know, finally data for you to sort of grab onto in this cannabis space, which, you know, some argue is a commodity and others argue is sort of very brand rich. And I think, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. Um, so, so what kind of data did, did you gather then? And, you know, how did you put it together? So at that point, um, when I first started to collect the data, the data set looked in its structure, similar to what we do now, that data set grew in breadth and depth, but focusing in three areas, um, social media, online news media, um, and web-related activities. And so the data is all ethically sourced data that we are collecting. You know, we had our own API plugin into into Meta, which was again that back at that time it was still Facebook, Instagram, um, and we work with a company called Meltwater and have for a long time on yeah. online news. They have this monster pipe, I think the biggest pipe in in, in the industry, um, and use some fairly sophisticated um, Boolean strings to to make sure that we're attributing. Uh, brand mentioned in online news into the right bucket. And then, and then web activities looking at um, traffic related metrics. So UVs, visits, uh, time on site, bounce rate, um, pages per visit. And then some backend stuff as well related to sort of on-page and off-page SEO, keywords and the like and, and backlinks. Um, yeah, so that's, that's some of, some of the, the, the and I think back to, you know, over the last couple of years, as you and I have gotten to get to know each other, uh, I think you've shared examples with me where some brands would suddenly see a rush of, let's say, new social media interactions. And, and then you're able to pretty much deduce over time that that company just bought a bunch of followers because the engagement dropped off, the number of followers dropped. I mean, is that the kind of uh, blocking and tackling that you have to do with this data to you know, help your customers understand some of these blips or trends that they see that you know, may be easily explained away? Yeah, we're in the position to look at it at a macro level and then get super granular, super fast. And we have some proprietary tools that let us go see when the needle actually moves and then go back and look at the content and see what's happening there. And our systems can also detect whether or not that's organic in nature or manipulated. And yeah, I think by and large, the manipulated is probably purchase of followers, uh, but then there's other things, you know, brands um, 
often often do sweepstakes activities and there's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully you execute where it's sort of done in an on-brand manner, but that's a way where you're gonna see uh, spikes in, in, in user growth and engagement and those will tail off. But generally speaking, if you're doing a, a well-executed sweepstakes campaign, the fall off is not, you know, it's not going to be so severe and that's a way to effectively build, build your audience. Whereas there are brands that go out and purchase thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of fans, fans or followers. And then you see that decay each and every week continually. So some of these, some of these strategies remind me of sort of consumer packaged goods kind of data and information. I used to work for somebody who came out of, you know, craft foods and, and she really knew this space well, even though we're in publishing, there was some of that that came to us, you know, as learnings. So like coupon drops and things like that, they're going to make changes. So that leads me to you know, think to your customers, which is, you know, who uses these insights that you create and, and, and what decisions are you helping your customers make? Is it like competitive intelligence? Like, oh, Ed's company just you know did a big coupon thing. That's why they, they've moved. Like, what are people doing and how do they ingest these, these insights that Pioneer creates? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we're still learning that, which is great. Obviously, I think so many people yep. in our in the same boat, right? Um, without a doubt, there's utility in our intelligence for brand operators, retailers, both dispensary and delivery, the investor community and then other marketing service providers. I think there are other groups, verticals inside the space and adjacent that can also find utility, but let's focus on, on those first four. And if we, if we look mostly at brand operators, right? I came to Pioneer as a brand operator. That's sort of how I built it. Um, lots of utility there, I'll give you a few. So in internally, right? The, the intel that we can be, that we derive can be used to measure um, campaign. So a campaign can be anything from uh, event sponsorship, launching into a new product territory, updating your website, uh, paying a group of influencers to do something like that, right, as a means to, to measure some sort of campaign or activity. Um, measuring personnel performance in-house or external freelancers or agencies um, is another good use for it. Um, and then for, for larger organizations, where you've got a cultivation department and maybe a finance department and sales, it's another means for marketing to be able to present in an all hands meeting or something like that. This is what we're doing in marketing and this is how we're helping to, to sort of move the needle for, for them. So those are some internal uses. Yeah, I was going to ask a question because you talked about sort of like if an event occurs and, and, and what might the impact of that be? So does that mean that there is some almost like geofencing impact that you can measure or you can say, well, in Connecticut, in the Connecticut market, this happened, or is it not quite that refined yet? We can do, that's not built into our scoring system at this point. Um, but with a little bit of manual work, we can make certain assessments on the localization, particularly around online news, right? Because there, if you do a review of it, you can see um, where, if, getting into local and regional politics, how that's helped to bump up an, an online, an online. Mm -hmm. and yeah, you can also do that um, with decent levels of accuracy around, around web activities. We're not at the point where uh, we're doing all that much on social, but yeah. And the idea is right. So you have a, a sort of baseline of where you were at before a given activity started, you know, where you sit and then where does it spike up to at the height of that activity or the height of the influence of that activity? And then if you naturally would go back down, are you above where you were at the beginning? Yeah. 
Exactly. So is it accretive or not? So I, I think we focused a lot on the internal uh, users and, and benefits. Is there is a flip side? Is there an external user kind of, or you know, more of an observer uh, investor? Uh... I think I think it's just sticking with the brand operator. Extern two big external use cases for the product. One is as a, a tool for for your wholesale department, right? So if you're a brand that enjoys awareness and engagement, you can bring that into um, target dispensaries where you want to get in the door, or if you're already in the door and you want to get better shelf space to talk through this idea of our brand is enjoying, um, you know, increasing awareness and engagement. So obviously buyers would, would be interested to know that when they're making their purchasing and then merchandising merchandising decisions. And also for co-marketing opportunities, right? For um, a, a big brand can go into a smaller retailer and potentially leverage their awareness um, as a means to negotiate a better deal with a smaller dispensary because they can maybe help elevate the awareness and the awareness for that smaller dispensary. Excellent. So one, yeah. No, I was, I was going to uh, move on. I, I'm curious, just sort of uh, from a numbers perspective, how many brands are you covering now? And what does it take for a brand to get on your radar screen? Because I imagine that there's a lot of brand proliferation, uh, but I don't know if that's true. That's sort of my biasing in hypothesis, but you know, so how many are on, on, on the radar screen and how do they get there? Sure. So there are a lot of brands in cannabis. Some may say, and particularly in certain territories where there are too many. Um, as of last week, we activate about every two months, we activate brands from our pipeline into our active brand pool. Brands will sit in our pipeline for six months. The reason being for almost all the metrics that we that we look at, we do include, um, we look at ab absolute position and then change in period. So to get a quarter over quarter measure, we need 26 weeks of data. So a brand will sit in our pipeline for 26 weeks before we move them to an active brand pool. And I would say this year, every two months, we've been adding another 25 brands to the active brand pool. We're now at 705, I think, as of last week. Mm. Um, and then the other question about how a brand, how a brand gets in, um, it's a really organic process and just sort of happens naturally. There's, there's, no, um, there's no prerequisites to getting involved. If you're a licensed seller of THC, if you're a THC wholesale product, um, we'd love to have you. And so uh, we publish the brands that are in our active brand pool and in the pipeline on our website. And so for anyone out there who's looking at this, if you're a brand that you love, that you work at or you love is not is not on our radar. By all means, hit us up, and we'll be happy to happy to add them. Excellent. So, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking was, you know, is there a minimum requirement for a brand? Like, how many geographies does it need to be in, or sales, social media clout? Like, uh, I guess you know, which factors have perhaps the most valence uh, so that they can break through that organic process to be like, pick me, and you know, I'm going to be in the brand pool. No, I think to, to our mind is like, if you're actively branding, right? If I, if I, we, the team stumbles upon a brand um, that we hadn't heard about that's actually been around for a little bit, but their last social media post was from November. And when you go to their website, it's showing a copyright date of 2020. We're not running to, to include them. But for brands that are, are in the moment and of the moment when we're, when we're reading about them and go see them, if they're actively marketing yeah, we'd be happy to, to add them to the, to the mix. Excellent. So not all brands are created equal. And, and, and brands, uh, 
there are different types of brands that are out there. Some are tied to celebrities. Some are, are owned by MSOs. I know last year we did some brand research just to try and get an understanding of which brands were carried uh, across some of the major uh, MSOs. And, and it was kind of hard to dig into that data. There's also craft brands. So I'm curious, you know, from where you sit now with all this data that you've been uh, ingesting and observing, you know, what is your take on these in terms of the celebrity brand, MSOs, and, and, and these different, you know, if you will, flavors of brands or types of brands? You know, which, which ones do you think are most impactful and why? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if we're going to focus on, let's say, celebrity, MSO, and craft, there's for sure room for, for all three in our industry. Um, and I'm sure that all three will be, will be a part of it going forward. I think, so if we're going to talk about celebrity brands, right? I think celebrity brands uh, or celebrity affiliations, I guess I should say, make a lot of sense. First of all, our culture is obviously celebrity uh, celebrity obsessed or celebrity focused. So um, there's that, but the other thing is that cannabis marketers face a huge number of, of um, obstacles in terms of what you can and can't do from a regulatory perspective on marketing and communications. And so leveraging the celebrity names as a means to sort of get your brand name out there or communicate a particular product launch or initiative makes a ton of sense. Um, there are a lot of celebrity brands and some of them are doing the celebrity affiliation thing um, quite well, and maybe others a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more head scratching. But from from if if you're we're going to dive into it, I would think you know celebrity brands. Um, we could bucket them, thinking about um, sort of ambassador teams is is one approach. Um, uh, a group out in Oregon started doing that years ago called Oregon, and they did it I think reasonably effectively many, many moons ago. Um, Claiborne is a, is a group that's doing it and they're leveraging different types of athletes from rodeo riders, BMX, motocross. And so using ambassadors to do it. And even truly last month or two months ago, um, used uh, Ethan Zahn, who was one of the first winners of Survivor quite effectively because he ran the Boston Marathon and was talking about use of their product. And they have recently come to the, to the Massachusetts market. So that was quite an effective use in terms of ambassadors. Um, can has done a really good job. We're talking about building an investor roster and so that they can use um, Gwyneth Paltrow, Rosario Dawson, Baron Davis, and the list goes on of people who I don't think appear in any of, or don't necessarily appear in any uh, outward communications, but are using, you know, their, uh, their voice or their soapbox as a means to, to um, further the can name. Line extensions is another um, celebrity affiliation that um, can be really effective. Viola did one earlier this year with Alan Iverson, which I think was, was super effective. AI still has uh, a lot of clout in a lot of a lot of places in culture. Um, Jeter, the brand, the, the pre-roll brand out of California, did one with Dwayne Wade. Um, so those line extensions can be can be quite effective. And then you have the celebrity face brands, right, where the celebrity in him or herself becomes um, the face of the brand. Um, Bella Thorne has one with, with Forbidden Flowers. Um, Seth Rogen and his brand Houseplant, they seem to be doing a lot of things really right when it comes to, to brand development. Um, whereas, yes, you know that it's Seth Rogen, but you don't see his face or read his name when you go to their website till way down on the page. And they've actually come up with an original brand position that's not reliant upon Seth Rogen, but doing something totally different with um, neatly designed 
houseware accessories, lamps, cups, and the like, um, and then good quality cannabis to go alongside of that. It's really quite interesting. So, so how, I mean, this is sort of gets to the heart of things. How much do you think that matters to the average consumer? Because the, the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around and we talked about earlier is unless that brand is available in your state and you're a consumer, you're not going to have access to it. Plus there's no real national advertising platform yet for this. So I'm curious, you know, to get your thoughts as to, you know, how does this move the needle? Like does it work really well in California or in these markets that have been around for a long time, whereas on the East coast it's mostly MSOs because it came out of a medical market model and the brands aren't quite as established. So you know, I, I guess the question is, do, do consumers care? And, and and does that show up, let's say, in perhaps sales, if, if you could even go, you know, extend that far out? I, I think there's a few things to unpack there, market maturity being one, and then the, the nature of the licensing within a state and the competitive nature. Um, there are some states that have growing cannabis consumption where the licenses are still held pretty tightly. And so brands don't really need to do all that much. Right. Question I think at the top was, does it matter for consumers? I also think that um, brands may the consumer, but as a, a, a means to um, raise awareness with, uh, with prospective dispensary clients or investors or the like. Um, I'm sorry if I lost track on, on your question. No, that's all right. I was just trying to figure out uh, for the average consumer, is it something that really affects their purchasing behavior? Because some of these brands are not available in all 39 uh, markets that are medical and, and or adults. So I was just kind of curious, um, you know, how, how much that really plays out uh, in, in terms of, let's say, increased sales. Right. I think, it, I think it's a great question. Brand loyalty, I think, is a, it's, a, it's an even bigger question, right? Even in places where forgetting about it at a national level, but people who are going to go in and buy a particular product in a given market, um, even if that product is readily available each and every day, is a, is another question. Um, I, I think it's it's um, it's an interesting question. I think most brands aspire for growth, and so as a means to raise awareness, again, using leveraging celebrity influence as is a way to to raise awareness for your own brand, whether your aspirations are big or gargantuan, and if you're only in a couple states or you have a national footprint, I still think that there's a case to be made that an effective, an effective celebrity strategy can be, can be beneficial. And again, also, it also comes down to what the nature of that uh, business arrangement is. Yep. No, that, that, that makes good sense. And, and you're right. I mean, a celebrity does cut across the sovereign nations that all these states have turned into with their own rules and regulations. And if, you know, you know that Mike Tyson is doing something or Snoop Dogg or whoever, um, you know, that, that's probably going to break through it, at least in, in, in some way. Um, focusing a little bit more on your business, Ben, of Pioneer, I'm curious, how do you find customers? How do they find you? Um, we've, been, we've been quite successful in terms of our own top of funnel activities in so much as we've, we've got um, a really nice subscriber list and, and being able to see um, who's opening up the, the emails that we send out on a monthly basis. And I'm not afraid to, to, to hit someone up from our, from our email list who I know is regularly reading our newsletter and interest in it. 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, that that's our primary way is, is using our, our email subscription um, as a means to, to bring people in and then, and then leveraging it from, from there. Excellent. Yeah, I know. And, and your newsletters are, 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 are certainly uh, insightful. And, and as you look across those people who, you know, do subscribe and, and moving toward uh, paying customers, you know, do they tend to come from MSOs, mom and pops, vendors, brand companies themselves? I mean, because they, they, they certainly exist. I mean, you know, who, who fits into that, that uh, bucket of uh, uh, customer for, for Pioneer? Yeah, we've done some work with agencies and they're using our tool and reporting as a means to demonstrate their performance back to their brand clients. Yeah. And that's another area where I'm, I'm super bullish on and hope we can expand that, that segment of our business. Most of the business right now is brand operators and it's really neat. I think we have certain brand operator clients that are quite sophisticated marketers and they're using some of the same tools that we are. But the mm. fact that we're bringing in this benchmarking capability Whereas if they're looking at, at a, a given tool, they can see what their own performance is and perhaps a couple other select brands um, to compare against, but we're gonna show them their performance against the industry at large. Um, and so those are sophisticated folks and they really just use our reporting. On the other hand, we work with some other um, less sophisticated operators and they come to us for strategic guidance alongside of the reporting. So we help them develop strategy based on sort of the, the data-backed um, intel that we can present to them. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, just speaking from a cannabis media standpoint, uh, I would be the first one to say there's a lot of power in aggregation because that's what we do. I mean, we go to all the states, we get as much information as we can, we add to it, et cetera, so that somebody can get a, a perspective that they're not going to get on their own unless they choose to go visit 150 regulators every month and month after month after month. And uh, we haven't found anybody who wants to do that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a good thing. Now, any challenges that, that, that Pioneer is contending with or, or things that are, you know, making you scratch your head or keep you up at night? Um, I mean, you know, shortening the sales cycle, but I'd probably be the same with everybody who's watching listening to the podcast. Um, <laughs> our, our industry right now is obviously faced with a lot of challenges and capital is not as loose and easy as it once was. Right. And so finding, finding the right people where we can really demonstrate that we can we can drive effective value and moving from that sort of nice to have to need to have um, is a challenge that I'm, I'm still trying to trying to crack every single day. Yeah, excellent. No, good. Great, great point. And then finally, the question we always like to ask, you know, looking forward, what trends are you keeping tabs on? You know, what should we be looking for if we're interested in understanding what's going on in this brand space that, that you know, you, you've already got your finger on the pulse? Yeah. I mean, from the brand space, um, Starting from a marketing marketing space, I do think it will be interesting as you talk about sort of um, benchmarking marketing performance around web activities. We are moving to um, eventually we'll be in a sort of a cookie free world, and that will have implications significant in, in, in how um, you measure uh, different metrics that, that factor into what Pioneer is doing today. And then from the brand space, yeah, I think I think it's 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 going to be really interesting. There were some, some quality brands that came out of the West that were doing a lot of things right that were very early um, without going down the rabbit hole of investor and sort of valuations, but um, maybe that market hasn't developed as quickly as they want and then trying to figure out what their strategies are to take those brands and help them expand into new markets. I think that will be uh, a really interesting story. More significantly though, is I think, whereas our industry has been very 
West Coast and West Western states focused, there are real brands that are being uh, developed in, in newer, less mature markets that are that are coming and they're probably learning, you know, from hopefully some of the stuff that maybe Pioneer is sharing with them, but learning from from the development that's happened before them. Um, so there are real players in Massachusetts and in, in Michigan and, and, a, and a handful of other newer markets that that are going to be real brands five years from now. And I imagine we'll have some presence back in the more mature markets on the West Coast. Yeah, absolutely. No, you bring up an interesting point. One of the things that we've been doing with our products, and I think you do the same, is sort of coming up with the leaderboards, who's leading, and people love to, to see that and compare. And the longer you build out your data, the richer that gets and, 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 and the more uh, sort of fundamental the insights you can provide because it's really built on a stable foundation. So uh, so I, I think it's you know very exciting what you guys are doing. And uh, you know thanks for joining us today, Ben. I, I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. Awesome. Thank you. And I had a good time being with you.